If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And I expect that many of us know this to be true from personal experience, don't we? More often than not, the easiest way to get something done quickly is to just do it ourselves, right? You probably run into that in your work or in your business or even when you're on teams in your schoolwork where you're like, I'll just do it myself, it'd be faster anyway. Involving other people tends to slow things down. It tends to kill the initiative at times we feel. However, we also recognize that most, almost anything significant in this life takes other people, does it not? The Sistine Chapel was not built by a singular individual. The Missouri Archway was not built by a single individual. The Declaration of Independence was not written by a singular individual. It took multiple people. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And yet I fear that, at least for myself, and probably for many of us, we don't tend to heed this same wisdom when it comes to our spiritual lives, do we? Many of us desire to go far in our spiritual walks. We desire to do something really significant for the kingdom of God, and yet we attempt again and again to do that fast and alone. We attempt to pursue everything God is calling us to by ourselves as individuals. But, you might object, isn't that better for everyone? After all, won't involving other people in my spiritual journey simply slow me down? Won't it make things more complicated and more messy? Well, the answer may be yes. And yet the question isn't, what is our intuition about the church? The question is, what does God's Word teach about the church? And aside from the hubris of this sort of statement, thinking we can do everything by ourselves, the more fundamental problem is it totally ignores Christ's design for our lives. It totally ignores what the Word of God teaches as the means to accomplish things for God's kingdom. You may be, theoretically, the most spiritually mature, the most biblically knowledgeable, the most intellectually brilliant person here at Faith Bible Church. Yet God still hasn't designed you for isolation. He hasn't designed you to operate on your own. And that's part of why we're going through this three-part series on the church. Right now, we're looking at the ecclesiology of the church. What do we understand the church to be fundamentally? Then we will jump into 1 John and we'll look at why fellowship is so important to the church before wrapping up with discipleship in our study of Titus in April and May. This morning, we move from the universal church that we talked about last week to our first look at the local church. Here is my working definition for what a local church is. A local church is a partnering assembly of believers who pursue the church's mission by faithfully proclaiming Christ and rightly practicing his ordinances. This is the definition that I'm going to attempt to prove to you from Scripture in our time together here this morning. That a local church is a partnering assembly of believers who pursue the church's mission by faithfully proclaiming Christ and rightly practicing his ordinances. That's my goal. That is my desire for our time together this morning. But in order to accomplish that, let's take a moment and let's pray and ask for God's guidance in our time. Father, we are thankful for the safety of everyone that has been able to make it here this morning. 
Lord, we're thankful for this church, for your faithfulness to us, for the fact that you called us out of lives, lived in reckless abandonment for ourselves, and called us to worship you and fellowship with you. Lord, thank you for that incredible privilege. Thank you for the gift that this church has been to me and my family, to all of us. And I pray that as we study your word together this morning, we would see the incredible realities of what you're calling us to. Lord, that you would conform us and make us into a bride that is prepared for Christ's return. In your power, in Christ's name, amen. Well, hopefully you'll recall just a little bit of what we discussed in our time together last week. We talked about the universal church. We sat to try and explain this enormous reality that Scripture teaches about what the universal or whole church is. We answered two key questions in our time together last week. First, we answered, what is the church? I don't know if that slide is big enough so that you can all read, but we answered the question, what is the church? We answered it with, the church is God's adopted household comprised of every redeemed believer. The universal church is all believers everywhere throughout time and space. Secondarily, we asked, why does the church exist? What is the purpose of the church? Why did God create the church? Now, I realize this is a bit more of a mouthful, so bear with my definition. We said the church exists to glorify God by representing Christ on earth, bringing people into unity under the gospel, and collectively pursuing holiness all by submitting to every command of Christ. I realize that's a bit of a mouthful, but that's going to become critical as we begin to move from the universal aspect of the church to the local church here in our time together this morning. Which brings us to our third question. The question we're going to be tackling in our time together this morning, what makes a church? What makes a local church a church? Now you'll notice the difference between the questions. We asked, what is the church, definite article if you're a grammar nerd, universal, and here we're asking, what is a church, indefinite article, local? So we're asking, what is it that we're doing here? Why do we even bother to meet together, particularly when it's so cold outside and the snow is so deep out in front of the building? Why did Tim and his team spend 12 hours or whatever it took to get the lot clear so that we can gather together here this morning? Why bother? That's the question we want to answer in our time together. And we're going to take a look at four different passages in the New Testament with four distinct actions that it calls groups of believers to do in order to be a church. We're going to say, the church is people who do these four things. First, the church, to be a church, believers must partner together. Believers must partner together. Now, I told you we would start in the book of Hebrews. Turn to the right in your Bible to the book of Hebrews. Keep your finger in Matthew as we'll be coming back to that. But we're going to look at Hebrews first. Hebrews is near the end of the Bible. Hebrews... James, 1st and 2nd, 3rd, John, Jude, and Revelation is the end. But we want to look at the book of Hebrews, and in chapter 10, we find an interesting passage. Now, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, but it's written to believers, right? It's written to believers, particularly those that were steeped in Hebrew-Jewish tradition. And in this passage, we see two distinguishing characteristics of local churches. The first, local churches are composed of confessing believers. Look at verse 19 in chapter 10 of Hebrews. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed pure with water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful." 
Now, I want us to stop there. I'm going to read the next few verses here in just a moment. But did you pick up on something interesting there? He's speaking to the church, and he presumes faith, does he not? The very nature of these verses shows that he presupposes he is speaking to people who have placed their faith personally in Jesus Christ. Did you see that? Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, since we have this new and living way, since we have this great high priest, therefore let us draw near. He speaks to that reality of being a part of the household of God. He says, because you have accepted Christ and are a part of the universal church, Therefore, you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, you'll notice that this emphasizes how the local church must also be an assembly of believers. He's going to comment here on what they should do when they come together here in a moment, but for now, he says, if you are believers, this applies to you. So we recognized last week that the universal church is comprised of believers. That is true of the local church as well. The local church must be comprised of believing members. This aligns with truth number two from last week. As far as the church is a confessing pillar. It is a pillar called to confess the truth of the gospel. But to do that, the author of Hebrews goes on. And he says, in addition to being composed of confessing believers, the church is also committed to edifying assembly. Look at verse 24. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. Not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Notice his exhortation. This, is, this passage in Hebrews is what's known as the lettuce patch. The lettuce patch. There's a series of let us, let us, let us. In light of the truth of the gospel, let us do a number of things. Let us hold fast our confession. Let us stir one another up to love and good works. Let us not quit meeting together. Here, he says, for this group of believing, professing Christians, they must also be committed to an edifying assembly, to coming together as a church. Did you see that? Not neglecting to meet together. And this term meet together is interesting because it actually is a derivative of the word for synagogue. Synagogue. It's an assembly. He's not, not forsaking the assembly is what he's saying. In essence, his argument here is the antidote for spiritual lethargy, the antidote for this sort of wavering or this sort of walking away is regular corporate gathering with the church. Did you see that? That's what he's arguing for. So therefore, we would argue that a local church must gather regularly for mutual encouragement. Now, these things feel a little bit bizarre or out of place, I know, to our modern culture, but go and read any of the historic confessions of faith, and they'll articulate this, regardless of where you find it. And this corresponds with our truth from last week, truth number one. The church is an adopted household. If the church is an adopted household, then therefore the local church must meet regularly together as a family to manifest that reality. You see, and this will be the relationship consistently throughout our discussion of this universal and local. The local church is intended to manifest the realities of the universal church. Do you see how the local church manifests the universal congregation? All believers through all time worshiping God, the reality we'll see one day finally in heaven. But for now, this regular gathering under the banner of Christ to encourage each other makes that universal and visible congregation tangible and visible. You see how that works? There's a greater universal reality, but it manifests itself in the local assembly. 
That's what his point is. That's why he says, don't forsake meeting together because you're called to an edifying assembly. You're called to come together under the banner of Christ for the purposes of the church. As a result, I would argue that believers must partner and assemble together to be a church. In some ways, that's part of the reason we're gathered here this morning, even when it's so hard. And that's part of the reason, it's, it's much like, if you've considered it, it's much like family dinner. Think about it. When your family comes together to share dinner, and I realize that this practice is largely outdated, right? Most of us struggle to get together for family dinner. This wasn't always the case. But there's something about family dinner when you're all gathered around the table that you realize this is our family. Is that not true? It's not that gathering around the table makes you a family, but when you are there, it's visible how you are a family. If you doubt that, ask any of the grandparents in the room whose children have moved out of the house and they're waiting for their kids and their grandkids to come back together for Thanksgiving or Christmas. Ask them what it feels like when they all come back together and they're around the dinner table. All of a sudden, they can see the reality of the family that they know they're a part of. It's exactly the same way with the local church. We come together here physically, tangibly, to manifest the greater congregation, the greater reality of the universal church. And this is why believers have made a habit of gathering weekly for worship since the dawn of the church in the first age, or in the first century, excuse me. This is what the church is called to be. Believers must partner and assemble together to be a church. It's foundational to who we are. Let me give you three reasons that I think that's so critical, and three reasons that this is so important for us. The first is that gathering allows us to publicly confess what we privately believe. Have you ever thought about that? You may believe personally in Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection, but it isn't until we come together that we are able to articulate with one voice, with one moment, or in one moment, that this is the Savior who we believe in. There is power, there is significance in one individual saying something. There is far more significance in a group of people declaring at the same time that they worship the same Lord. So when we come together, our gatherings allow us to publicly confess what each of us privately believes. In addition to that, our gatherings help us publicly display the unity of the church. So we can talk, like last week, about the reality of the universal church being unified under the banner of Christ. But that's very hard to get your hands on, is it not? It's very hard to understand that we are unified with this enormous group of people that we've never seen or met. And so when we come together as a body, it reveals, it manifests that greater reality of the universal church, that unity that we have under the banner of Christ. So our gatherings allow us to publicly confess what we privately believe. They allow us to publicly display the unity of the church. And lastly, and the point he's making here in Hebrews 10... Our gatherings provide a context for our commitment to each other and mutual encouragement. The mandate of pursuing holiness together, all of the things we're going to talk about in the next couple of weeks as far as what the church is called to do, are dependent upon having a relationship with one another. They're dependent upon growing together, knowing each other. And when we gather, it provides a context for us to invest in each other's lives, for us to encourage and support and pray for one another. Now, I realize that this becomes really kind of a funny conversation to have on a morning when about half of us are not here, when about half of us are watching through a camera in the back of the room. 
See, there's two ways this tends to err. Some of us grew up in traditions that told us that that means, because the church is the church, that means every time the doors are open, we have to be at church. Am I not right? It doesn't matter if it's a Bible study or a missions talk or a church service or any sort of activities. If the doors are open, you must be there. That would be one extreme that I think is inappropriate here. Clearly, there are some of us who are shut-ins and aren't able to get out and join the service. Clearly, there are some of us who this morning are sick. Clearly, there are some of us this morning who literally can't get out our front door. All of those circumstances take place. And what he is not saying is that those people are in sin because they're incapable of joining the body. However, we must recognize that the normative practice of the church is to make every effort to prioritize gathering together. The regular assembly of the church. The regular collection of the saints. And in that way, we at Faith Bible Church should pursue this reality as well. Should pursue partnering and assembling regularly together as a church. I would encourage you to consider in your own mind, is that a priority for you? Is that something that you have placed as a high priority on your list of things to accomplish in the week? Is gathering together with Christ's body, with the manifestation of the universal church, a priority in your week? This is how we begin to build our definition for the church. So if I can come back to my original definition. A local church begins by partnering, being a partnering assembly of believers. I don't know if you can see that color or not. Hopefully everyone can see that a little bit. We'll work our way through this definition, but for now, a local church is a partnering assembly of believers. We partner together as a church. But naturally, it would be to ask the question, why do we need to cooperate together? What is it that we're seeking to accomplish by coming together? If you're telling me that I can go fast by myself, but it takes people joining together to go far, what are we going far on? I believe this question is addressed in Matthew chapter 28. So turn to the left in your Bibles to Matthew. We'll spend the rest of our time together this morning in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 28, Christ's final words in the Gospel of Matthew. I find this text to be fascinating. This text is fascinating because I think it exemplifies that to be a church, believers must pursue the mission of the greater church. Believers must pursue the mission. Now, I know this text is probably familiar to many of you, but I find this text really intriguing for a number of reasons. Firstly, because Christ here, I think, takes the universal principles of the church that Paul would later expound in Ephesians, what we looked at last week, and he applies them directly to the believers, to his disciples, and this specific group of believers. In Matthew 28, verses 16 through 20, I think we see the same sort of priorities set by Christ as Paul would later describe in the book of Ephesians. Now, I realize this is a familiar text, so as I read through it, I want to encourage you not to read it the way you normally do. Instead, be looking for the priorities of the church that we talked about last week. Let me read through this text, and I want you to see if you can see how the same priorities are expressed here as we saw in last week in Ephesians. Matthew 28, verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Did you pick up on any of them? Did you see any of the pictures, the emphasis that we saw last week of the universal church? Here in this text, Christ commands essentially the same five foundational purposes of the church that we saw in Ephesians. First, Christ affirms the church as a submissive body. Do you remember that from last week? How the universal church is called to submit to the headship of Christ. How does he do so? Look at verse 18. And Jesus came and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Christ establishes his universal authority to give the commands he is about to give. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth, including that over the church. All authority has been given to me. Therefore, I am the one who can give you your marching orders. You are called as a church to submit to me and my authority. The church is to be a submissive body, so is the local church. Then Christ affirms the church as a universal mystery. Look back at verse 19. He confirms this universal nature of the church in verse 19 by saying, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. He says, your task is not to make disciples just of the Jews. Your task is not to make disciples just of people in Rome. Your task is not to make disciples of just your friends and neighbors. Your task is to make disciples of the whole world, of all nations, of everyone, everywhere. Because the universal church is this universal mystery of all people worshiping God. Therefore, your task is not complete until you go and make disciples of all nations. Do you see how that reaffirms this universal mystery that we talked about? And Christ looks at his disciples and he says, you are to pursue that mission of making disciples of everyone. You don't get to just pick which people you like most and make disciples of them. You don't get to ignore the Samaritans. You don't get to ignore the people you don't like. You are to make disciples of all nations to manifest the universal reality of the church. But from there, Christ also affirms the church's role as his representative agent. He says, in order to go and do this, you must represent me. Look back at verse 19. So, make disciples of all nations and baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He says, you are to baptize them into this church. You are to make them representatives of us, of me, right? of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Why is it that when we perform baptisms, we say, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit? It's not because that just makes it kind of religious and formal and just makes it a fun thing to say. We say that because that's what Christ commanded. Because when you are baptized, you are physically representing the universal reality that's already taken place. You've already been saved and regenerate and received the Holy Spirit And when you are baptized, we declare publicly and tangibly that reality has taken place in your life. The implication is that we are called to continue to pursue operating in Christ's name, right? We are to operate as Christians and as churches in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. What he prioritizes, we're supposed to prioritize. What he calls us to do, we're supposed to do. Where he calls us to go, we're supposed to go. We function as embassies and as representatives of the God we serve. He reinforces this representative agency of the church. 
But to do that, some additional work is also necessary. So Christ also affirms the church's role as his holy bride here. Look at verse 20. Last week we talked about how the universal church was supposed to pursue holiness and sanctification. Well, what does Christ say? Verse 20. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Says to pursue this mission, you are to be a holy group of people. You are to pursue sanctification. You are to pursue righteousness. You are to pursue being Christ's holy bride. There's this ongoing work of sanctification that needs to be a priority in every group of believers. And all of this ultimately aims, just like we talked about last week, at bringing God glory. So Christ finally affirms his presence to assure the church's role. And in verse 20, we also see that the church is a promotional display. What does Christ wrap up his words with? And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Christ promises his presence to accomplish his purpose in his people. He says, I am with you to the end of the age. He says, because the purpose of the church, the purpose of you all is to support the mission and to accomplish and to fulfill the glory of God, I am going with you. Just so you don't receive credit for yourselves. I will make it happen. Right? All authority has been given to me. I am with you to the end of the age. Because the preeminent purpose of the church is God's glory. The church is to be a promotional display, just like we talked about last week. But all of these things together remind us that believers, to be a local church, must also pursue the mission of the church. A local assembly must be pursuing the universal reality and mission of the church. In that way, these truths give people, give us practical, tangible ways to cooperatively pursue the mission of the church. Does the Great Commission, does reading this text not feel too big for you to do alone? It should, right? And so we cooperate together to pursue the mission together. Now let me give you a few practical implications of that as they work out in our church. The first is we have to remember that this priority, this mandate from Christ, means that churches are generalists, not specialists. By their nature, churches have to be generalists rather than specialists. We have to focus on all the things that Christ is commanding us to do here. We can't just pick our favorite lane and run in that. That means we have to pursue all types of believers, not just our niche. Not just our niche, niche, niche. I don't want to take a poll and find out which one is which. I think it's okay to say it either way. We don't get to pursue, as a local assembly of Christ's saints, just the people we want to pursue. Which goes entirely affront of what common church growth gurus would tell you. I don't know how many of you, maybe I'm the only one here that reads those sort of people. But what the common human wisdom for growing a church says is you, as an elder council or as a pastor, you find the people you think you can reach. Okay, so I'm a 34-year-old parent with young children. Common wisdom would say the best thing to do is go pursue people like that. You're going to appeal to young parents because that's kind of where you're at. So focus on appealing to them. But that's not what Christ tells his church to do. He tells his church to make disciples of all nations, to fellowship and partner with anybody who declares the name of Christ. I don't get a pick and say, this is my favorite demographic of people. Those are the ones I'm going to minister to. 
And so in the church, you have the young, like the youth band. And you have the old. You have the rich and the poor. You have people of backgrounds from various places. All together, we must pursue the whole nation, that manifestation of that universal reality as a church. But in addition, it also means that we must pursue all the purposes that Christ has laid out for his church here. We don't get to just be experts. We don't, as a church, get to just say, well, we're not really very worried about reaching people with the gospel. We're just going to focus on maturing and equipping people. This is our niche. This is our target. This is all we have to do. By its nature, we have to be focused on everything that Christ has called us to be as a church. We don't get a pass on the things we aren't very good at. Now, it doesn't mean that some churches aren't better at some things than others. That's not my point. But the point is, we don't get to say, ah, we're not really worried about that. We're just an evangelizing church. We don't really train and equip people. We have to pursue everything that Christ is calling his church to be. In that respect, for better or worse, the church must be a jack-of-all-trades, master of none. If you've ever heard that phrase, right? I'm just a jack-of-all-trades, master of none. That drives me crazy. I like being a specialist, actually. I like being really good at one thing and not having to multitask. I'm terrible at multitasking. Maybe some of you are like, I like doing a lot of different things. I'm not very good at one thing. But the church, as defined by Christ, must be focused on multiple things. We don't get to just say, we're good at this thing, and that's all we do. The nature of the church. The second thing that I think is a practical implication of this reality is that churches have predefined goals. One of the things you'll run into, and maybe you don't run into it very often, but people are constantly looking for the new innovative way to describe the church. For 2,000 years, we have been looking for the new innovative way to describe the church. We don't need a new innovative way to describe the church. The church is the church, and God defines the church. Now, the methods may change. How we go about it, how we reach people, the fact that I, there's a camera sitting on the back wall and there are people listening to me through that camera is astounding. And yet, the mission doesn't change. The goals don't change because God has defined the goals. We don't get to rewrite the script. We have predefined goals from God. And so as Faith Bible Church, just like every other local assembly of believers around the world, we must pursue Christ's mission for his church. We must pursue that with everything that we have. And so we can add to our definition of the church, in addition to this partnering assembly, we can also say a local church is a partnering assembly of believers who pursue the church's mission. That doesn't seem too radical, does it? We are called to pursue Christ's mission, God's mission, for his church, to locally manifest that greater goal that the universal church is called to pursue. And to accomplish this mission, Christ has mandated some specific defining tasks, some things that the church must be participating in. So thirdly, we see that to be a church, believers must proclaim Christ. Believers must proclaim Christ. Now flip to the left a few chapters in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. Just a few pages probably to the left in your Bibles, but this is a critical text for us to understand. Now, we read this passage last week because we wanted to highlight the incredible reality of Christ saying, I will build my church. But here I want to spend a little bit more time looking at this text specifically and Peter's confession. Let me read verses 13 through 20, and then we'll make a few brief notes on it. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, 
Others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? What a question. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now this is a fascinating passage. The thing worth noting is Matthew 16, this proclamation functions as a hinge in the book of Matthew. Up to this point, Christ has been teaching, but from this moment on, Christ's life and Matthew's gospel take a beeline for the cross. This is the moment when everything kind of shifts and Christ heads directly for his sacrifice on Calvary. And it's precipitated by this confession of Peter here that transitions the whole book toward the death of Jesus Christ. I just want to focus on a few things. We're not going to be able to cover it exhaustively, but there's a few things I want to note. First, I want to note what Peter's profession is. Look at verse 16. What is it that has such a big impact here? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ the Son of the living God. It is Peter's recognition by the Spirit of Christ's identity and purpose that makes a huge difference here. It changes the whole trajectory of Peter's life and the whole trajectory of this book when he says, you, Jesus, are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the one that has been sent to save Israel, to save the world. And it is that moment that alters Peter's life forever. It is that moment when he recognizes for the first time who Jesus is. Now, it doesn't mean he's infallible because he goes on to say some really stupid stuff. But at this moment, he realizes the truth of the gospel and declares it publicly. And as a result, it is Peter's profession that functions as the foundation for the church. From there, Jesus responds and he says, Blessed are you, right? And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, a whole lot has been done with this phrase, I will tell you, you are Peter, on this rock, I will build my church. What is the rock? What is he talking about? Well, the Roman Catholic Church would have us believe that this is the definition of papal authority, the succession from Peter directly of one pope after the other until you come to the present-day pope. It's fundamentally a misunderstanding of this text. What is the rock? What is the foundation? Well, what is it that Peter has just said? He has just declared the truth of the gospel. That is the foundation. That is the bedrock that the church is built upon. Now he can say, I will build my church. Christ declares to build the church, but the rock that it's been built on is Peter's profession of faith. His clear articulation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the foundation of Christ's church. Now it's interesting to note, one of the things that you must recognize about this text though is as it goes on, it feels as though it's talking about Peter, right? Because if you read it, you go, I will give you the keys of the kingdom, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose. And it's interesting to note, these yous are all singular, they're not plural. Now, what I would have you believe is that that does not prove that this undying succession from the Pope, from Peter to the Pope, is, is what he's talking about here. But what it does show, I think, is that based upon Peter's profession, he becomes the first brick in the temple that God is building, that is the church. 
Peter's profession, the truth of the gospel, is what saves Peter and makes him into the first brick. He starts his church here as Peter recognizes the truth of the gospel. And then the rest of the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles. Right? Again, I, I want to be clear on this because it's not what Roman Catholic theology would have you believe, and yet there is a place that Peter has an incredibly important role here. As then the apostles take it and they share the gospel and the church is formed. So their role is to accept the gospel and then to declare the truth of the gospel to the world. And through that means, Christ's church is built up. Do you see what's going on in this text? And then he goes on to describe the, king, the keys, and this is where it gets a little bit tricky. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Well, what is that talking about then? Well, if the foundation is the gospel and the elements, the bricks of the, are the people that begin to believe that foundation, then the keys being given are the ability to distinguish between truth and error. The keys here are not some infallibility, some ability to declare and make heaven believe what we believe on earth. The keys are the recognition of what heaven has declared to be what we declare here on earth. The truth of the gospel. The ability, the, the mandate to distinguish truth from error. As local churches, we must distinguish what one author has called the what of the gospel. It is our task to declare what is and what isn't the gospel. That's why historically churches have had statements of faith. They've had confessions. They've had things that say, this is the truth of the gospel, and this is not. Here, this begins in Matthew 16, as the church is called to distinguish, this is true gospel, this is not. To make that profession, to distinguish between truth and error on the gospel. And the church is called to walk in that lane. And that reality reveals itself in a couple of ways in a local church. First, and probably the thing that comes to your mind immediately, is it's revealed by the faithful teaching of qualified elders. By what a church says as it proclaims the truth of the gospel. By, by this declaration, by my articulation or the elders' articulation of the gospel, by faithfully teaching what the word of God teaches. But the secondary thing, and one we probably don't tend to think about as much, is a church's faithfulness here is also revealed in its obedient reception of that truth. One of the things that makes a church a true church is the congregation's willing acceptance of the truth that is declared. I could stand up here all day long and I could preach until I'm blue in the face the truth of the gospel, and if none of you accepted it, there's no way we're a church. I'm just somebody preaching to a crowd. If we don't, as a congregation, as a body, submit to the truth of God's word and say, God, whatever you teach, we will obey, then we are not a church. We must be willing to obediently respond to the truth that is faithfully declared. It's part of what makes a church a church. That obedient response and that faithful proclamation of the foundation of the gospel. So as Faith Bible Church, I would commend you, I would exhort you to commit to faithfully obeying whatever the Word of God teaches. However it conflicts with your presuppositions or your current thinking, commit to say, this is the truth that I will obey. We must proclaim Christ together 
as a church, to be a church. Which adds just a few more words to our definition of a church. We now have a local church is a cooperating assembly of believers who pursue the mission by faithfully proclaiming Christ. By faithfully saying, this is the truth of the gospel, just like Peter did here, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Which leaves just one final component, one final piece that we have to recognize about what the church is. Lastly, to be a church, believers must practice the ordinances. Now I realize this is going to feel a little strange to us, so bear with me here. If you're to the right in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18, I think we see why this is so necessary in verses 15 through 20. Let me just read that, and you may be a little confused why I'm making this point, but hopefully by the time I'm done, you'll see what I mean. In Matthew 18, verses 15 through 20, we read, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now, we talked about this passage in more detail about a year ago in January of 2022. So if you missed that message, you can find it on our website, faithbiblelincoln.org, and that's a fuller exposition of this text where we talked about the steps of church discipline and the way we're supposed to confront each other. I'm not going to go into all that because we've just preached on it. For now, I want to focus on just one aspect of this text. I want to focus on the latter half of this section, verses 18 through 20, because he makes an interesting comment in verses 18 through 20 about the distinction of the church. Did you notice the similar language with Matthew 16? He talks about loosing and binding. Right? And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So there's some sort of distinction that he's trying to understand. But the context of Matthew 18 isn't the declaration of the gospel so much it is the who that's involved, right? It's all talking about church discipline. It's talking about how people repent or don't repent and are put out of the church. So as we walk through this process of addressing sin that Matthew 18 lays out, Christ emphasizes this binding and loosing reality. But he does so to define the who of the gospel. Matthew 16 is the what of the gospel. What is truth and what is error? Matthew 18 is who is declaring that truth versus living in error. Do you see that? It's who rather than what. So due to the unrepentance of this individual who's sinning repeatedly, has been confronted, and chooses not to repent... The church is called to bind and loose. The church is called to step in. The church is called to make the distinction evident. And so we talked about last year when we talked about church discipline in Matthew 18, we said it's not about vindictiveness. It's not about getting back at this person. But it is about making clear to the world what is a genuine profession of faith lived out in obedience to Christ and what is open rebellion against Christ. So he says, you step in here to make it clear to the world what a faithful walk in Christ looks like versus what a rebellious, disobedient life looks like. Again, not with infallibility. The church doesn't always get this right, and it doesn't mean that what the church decides on earth makes heaven follow that lead. It means that we as a church should seek to make 
professions, the who is declaring the gospel the same as who, what the gospel is. To say, if you're living your life in open rebellion against sin, you are defying the gospel that you claim to preach. And the church is called to make that distinction clear. To make it clear what is a walk with Christ in obedience and repentance and what is a total rebellion against what God has called us to be. We're called to make this distinction evident by declaring the who of the gospel. And that's that idea of binding and loosing. And he says the context for that is verse 20, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. We tend to read this verse and we think in individualistic terms. And so we think whenever I go out to coffee with two of my friends, that means, well, yes, the Holy Spirit is present there. I'm not denying that. But specifically, he has in mind two or three, no matter the size of the church, if they are gathered in my name under the banner of Christ, they have this task. They are called to pursue this distinction between the world and the redeemed. And historically, that distinction has been chiefly expressed through the ordinances of Jesus Christ, through the celebration of baptism and communion. And again, you can, you can go and you can read any number of confessions of faith through different denominations. Historically, most people have understood from Scripture that the way this gets worked out is through baptism and communion. Baptism as this entrance into the tangible, visible community of the church. And communion as this ongoing affirmation of someone's confession of faith. This is part of the reason that when we get up to do communion, we remind people that if you're not a believer, if you haven't personally placed your faith in Jesus Christ, we're glad you're here watching and seeing everything we're doing. But we'd encourage you not to take the elements. Why? Because you're not a part of the church. And by that I don't mean our church. I mean, you're not a believer. And so most of the time throughout history, the church has said these are the marks that distinguish those that are walking with Christ and those that aren't. Those that have professed faith in Christ and those that haven't is worked out in many ways in the ordinances, the Lord's Supper and baptism. So therefore, to be a local church, we must rightly carry out the ordinances. We must rightly express the ordinances. And obviously, this was very critical to the reformers. This was extremely critical, so you'll find in most of their definitions this sort of language. But it's not unique to the Reformation era. It's something the church has historically seen again and again. So therefore, believers must faithfully practice the ordinances as a church. We must faithfully observe these commands that Christ has given us as his local assembly, as his local body. And the applications of this are fairly straightforward. I don't have to get out too much Greek to explain this. It means that baptism serves as an incredibly important entrance into the church, as the declaration of a universal reality that has taken place, manifest in a local assembly. Every time somebody stands up here on stage and says, Christ has done a work in my life, he has regenerated and changed my heart, and now I want to live with all of you in fellowship and faith. It's like they're being entered into, they're like joining the church. Does that make sense? Because they're declaring that greater reality. And every time we celebrate communion together, there's this ongoing participation and celebration together of our shared faith. We declare what Christ has done and we proclaim his death until he comes back. And then obviously, here in 18, that discipline serves to undo both in some sense. To say what you declared when you were baptized and what you declare when you celebrate communion is now longer or is no longer showing itself to be valid. It looks as though you're Walking away from Christ, it looks as though you're not professing faith anymore. 
And the church can't say that with infallibility, but we say it doesn't appear that way. We don't see it. That's why that makes it so difficult. But as a church, as Faith Bible Church, part of what makes us a church is faithfully practicing these ordinances together. Again and again, declaring and showing the truth of the gospel in these ordinances that Christ has commanded his church to obey. Which completes our definition. It completes what I would believe to be the call of what the local church is to be. A local church is a partnering assembly of believers who pursue the church's mission by faithfully proclaiming Christ and rightly practicing his ordinances. That's what a local assembly is. That's what a local church is. Now, we'll discuss further in the next few weeks all that goes into a healthy church. There's a whole lot of other things that could be added to this that make a church more faithful or less faithful, more pure or less pure, more healthy or less healthy. But for now, I think it's appropriate to settle with that. We can say that any group of believers engaged in these four realities can rightly be considered a true church of Jesus Christ. Some are healthy, some are unhealthy. Some are faithful, some aren't faithful. Some are right on more things and wrong on more things, but they can be considered a true church. They partner and assemble together as a body. If they pursue the church's mission together, if they proclaim Christ and his commands faithfully together, and if they practice the ordinances rightly together, there you have a true church. In this respect, I think John Calvin had it right when he said this. He said, Whatever we, or wherever we see the word of God purely preached and heard, and the sacraments administered according to Christ's institution, there it is not to be doubted a church of God exists. That's what the local church is called to be. That's what we are called to be. The question we each have to ask ourselves the question, or is, do you want to go fast or do you want to go far? If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Lord, for the clarity with which it teaches, for the conciseness with which you have instructed us. Lord, I pray that as a church we would pursue the mission of your greater church and we would be faithful to your call for our church. Lord, that we would recognize that we are the body, that we are the church. We don't come to the church. The church isn't a place, it's not a building, it's not an activity or an event. It is the people that you have called out. Lord, you've called us to faithfully commit to one another, to care for one another, to pursue Christ together, to declare him to the world. And I pray that you would make us faithful to that charge as a church. Lord, help Faith Bible Church, as Dimitri prayed earlier, to be faithful for generations to come on these tenets, on what we're being called to do as your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.